spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the Why dark? Why do animals not understand humans? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. What's new in the world of science? Well, I spotted this and thought this would be very helpful for anyone who is not a fan of James Blunt because scientists have come up with an incredibly long-lasting painkiller. Uh, this is a wonderful discovery. It's by Daniel Cohane, who's a researcher at Harvard in America. And what he and his team have managed to do is to produce a chemical composition which, when injected near nerves, will block pain and other sensations in those nerves for over 180 hours, so seven days. That's now, amazing. Now, the they've done this... It is amazing because the best anyone could do before now was to use very big doses of local anaesthetics, including one called bupivacaine. And those are very good, but long-term tests have shown that they can have toxic effects on both muscle cells and nerve cells, so obviously you want to avoid that if you can. And the approach that this group have taken, and they've published this paper in the journal PNAS this week, is that they have started with a chemical called saxitoxin. And saxitoxin is a nerve toxin, Uh, which is made by algae which grow in water, including blue-green algae. So when you're told not to swim in reservoirs that might have blue-green algae, this is one of the reasons why. Mm. Saxitoxin blocks up a channel which allows sodium to get into nerve cells, so it's how nerve cells become active. So if you put small amounts of it near a nerve cell, it will reversibly block the activity in that nerve cell. And what this group have done is to develop a way of putting this saxitoxin inside little tiny oily bags called liposomes. So these are tiny structures, about four micrometers, four thousandths of a millimetre across, which are effectively a lipid um, bilayer. So in other words, an oily membrane around the drug. And when you inject these things, they fuse with the nerve, delivering the drug just into the nerve. There are no systemic side effects, and they produce this long-lasting blockade. And they found they get the best blockade when they add some steroid to it too, some dexamethasone, probably because this stops any inflammation and keeps the substance just in one place where you inject it. And pretty consistent, when they did experiments in rats, they managed to block pain in these rats for 180 hours, plus or minus four hours, which is an amazing finding. And because rats are very, very similar to us, and we have exactly the same physiology, the chances are the same trick could work in us. So certainly a big step forward. Absolutely. How long before that comes about to uh, help ease the pain? Well, uh, we know that these drugs do work in humans, but before you can put any drug into a person, you have to go through very rigorous testing. And in fact, this is the major impediment, because very often scientists will make a breakthrough, they'll discover something very important, but then it's the clinical trials that have to be done that really hold things up. Not, Not because clinical trials are there to be obstructive, but they've got to prove that things are safe. And if you want to put these things into people on the large scale, you need to be sure that there's not going to be some kind of side effect. And, and usually the cost of these clinical trials 
runs to about half a billion pounds. So big investment and about five years at least, if not ten years, before you'd see something like this actually in test tubes and then in needles and then in patients. Mm. But at the same time, um, occasionally there's the capacity to fast-track things and if there's already a drug that does a similar job or a drug which works in the same way out there, that can set a precedent and help to speed things along. But hopefully this kind of model will be followed and then people can begin to benefit from this uh, new discovery. Right, OK. Leanne in Kent has called in and uh, she says um, she's a type 2 diabetic and insulin dependent. She wanted to give blood, but due to her diabetes, she can't. But she recently heard that you can donate platelets and wondered if she would be in the position to do this. What's the verdict, Chris? Well... It's a bit unfair to say that people with diabetes can't be blood donors. I'm not sure what the rationale behind saying that is. There's there's presumably a good reason, Um, but I'm not aware of it. I think in the past people were worried about drugs that people might be on and those drugs having a persistent effect in the donated cells. Um, Platelets are little bits of cells. Uh, They're made in the bone marrow from big cells called megakaryocytes, and those megakaryocytes bud off little tiny particles which are about a hundredth of the size of a big blood cell, or t- at, least a, at least a fiftieth of the size. And platelets are very important because what they do is to help blood to clot. So they recognise when there is a breach or piece of damage to the wall of a blood vessel because they can recognise collagen, which is the connective tissue found deep inside the walls of blood vessels. And when the platelet sees collagen, it activates. And the uh, activation can take the form of the platelet going from a smooth structure to a very spiky, jagged configuration, which makes it more likely to jam in the hole. And also platelets have little vesicles or... Uh, granules inside them which are loaded with other chemicals that help to control bleeding by constricting blood vessels and making them get smaller by activating other platelets and also by um, provoking other aspects of the the clotting cascade to kick in. You have lots of platelets in your bloodstream and so I don't see any reason why someone couldn't donate some platelets in their blood if they wanted. But I I wasn't aware that people who had diabetes weren't in, in the first instance allowed to donate blood because people with type 2 diabetes might not actually have any drugs that they're taking. It may be that they're controlled entirely by diet, and so mm-hmm. I think I don't see any impediment under those circumstances. But maybe someone from the blood uh, bank who knows the, the reasons for why people with type 2 diabetes may not be able to donate blood, maybe they could let us know. Now, Chris, Mike in Colchester says he's very pleased that he's got his own teeth, but yesterday when he had his morning bowl of cereal and the spoon touched a filling, he got a small electric shock. Why is this? <laughs> Mike is creating a battery inside his own mouth. Um, The reason for this is that you have silver mercury amalgam. Uh, That's the material which was discovered in 1871 by somebody in London as a useful way to fill teeth. And what this means is you have two reactive metals in your teeth and if you mix two metals together, two different metals, and you have an electrolyte, a liquid that can conduct electricity between them, then one of the metals can react and go into solution, forming ions. The other metal can receive extra electrons and you get a circuit. And what you're effectively doing is creating a miniature battery or passing a little electric current through your mouth because one of the metals, the metal in your filling, is going into solution and the spoon, the steel, is presumably soaking up some electrons and being the negative pole of the battery. So I suspect that that's what's happening. Um, he's made a little battery in his mouth using the, t- using the, the different electrode potentials of the two metals. Hmm. Well, from um, tooth, toothy, toothy pegs to saliva, um, Agnes in Braintree says, could you describe what saliva consists of? 
yes. Um, well, saliva is actually an ultra-filterate of blood plasma. What that means is that you have salivary glands. You've got one just in front of your ear called your parotid gland, and that's on each side of the face. You also have one which is under your chin, your sub sublingual gland, and you also have two on either side under your jaw, your submandibular, under your mandibles. That's why they're called submandibular glands. And these glands contain dense networks of blood vessels and special cells which, when the blood flows through, uh, the blood gets squirted out of tiny holes in the blood vessels so that the cells can't fit, but liquid and salts can. And so you get water being squirted out of the blood to form saliva. And the cells which are in those glands modify the saliva a little bit by adding various chemicals and proteins, including things like antibodies, IgA, which helps to protect you from bacteria and viruses, and also things like lysozyme, which is a protein, an enzyme that can break down bacterial cell walls. So that helps to have uh, an antibacterial effect. And the saliva then flows down the salivary ducts, in each case, and opens into your mouth cavity. And once it gets into the mouth... Once it's there, it has a number of roles. One role is obviously to keep your mouth wet and lubricated because uh, you want to make sure that food and things you put in your mouth can slip down easily, and that's part of the role of saliva. It's got a lot of mucin, another protein, which is very slippery in it, so that helps things to slip down easily. Uh, as I say, it also contains a lot of antibodies and other things that control bacteria, so it's also there in an antibacterial and protective role to stop you getting infected with things. So saliva very important job made by filtering your blood. Hmm. Liz in Ipswich says that he, she's been diagnosed with arthritis in her ankle recently and has been prescribed diclofenic sodium, 15 milligram tablets, which don't seem to be helping very much. She used to love walking, but due to the arthritis, this is becoming more and more difficult. Will the tablets start to help more with time or is there just anything I can do? Because she just wants to get up walking about again. Sometimes things take a while to kick in, don't they? Yeah, diclofenac or diclofenic uh, is an aspirin-like drug. It's an anti-inflammatory and it blocks an enzyme called cyclooxygenase. And cyclooxygenase makes inflammatory chemicals called prostaglandins. So when you take these drugs, you reduce the production of the prostaglandins, which are part of the inflammatory cascade. And this helps to reduce pain because prostaglandins wind up pain nerve fibres. In other words, the nerve fibres that signal that something is painful get more excited when there are prostaglandins present. Mm. Also, part of the other aspects of inflammation, like swelling and heat, are also caused by prostaglandins. So if you stop them being produced, then you can make an area which is sore become much less tender. The problem is that this is effectively smoothing over, putting a sticking plaster over something which is damaged, but it's not actually affecting the disease process underneath very much, in the sense that, the arthritis is a wear and tear phenomenon. It's usually associated with old age or mm. also with a joint that's been damaged in the past. People who have, say, broken an ankle mm. might have damaged the articular surface, the bit of the bone that rubs on another bit of bone. And as a result, uh, you then get uneven loading of the joint or wear and tear on the joint, which then culminates in arthritis. And the other thing can happen is that... that um, when you have arthritis in a joint, this is caused by the cartilage, which is the slippery coating on the surfaces of the bones that articulate together, wearing down. Sometimes if you get damage to the cartilage, uh, this can then accelerate the process of arthritis. So it won't unfortunately make the problem go away, but it will make it more comfortable. And unfortunately, um, we all have to get old. And uh, there's not really, in severe cases, any replacement apart from to replace a joint.
Mm. Now, Chris, uh, Anne had uh, rung in to ask about the honeybees. She'd heard that they're in danger or something like that. Is there any update on this? What do you know, Chris? Yes, bees are facing quite a problem. Not so bad here as in some places in Europe and certainly in the United States. And the problem that's being described is a condition called colony collapse disorder, CCD. And what's happening is that people who keep bees for a living professionally, because this is big business, bees Mm. do such an important job for us in pollinating crops. In fact, the contribution to the UK economy runs into millions, if not billions of pounds, actually, just by bees pollinating crops and flowers and plants for us. But in America... What people are increasingly reporting is that these hives that they use to take to farms to pollinate crops for farmers, uh, they'll go back to their hive and where previously they had a thriving colony of bees, the hive will be empty, devoid of bees. The bees have all mysteriously vanished. And this is happening increasingly and no one's really sure why. Now, when they first started to see this happening, pests were blamed because bees have the equivalent of bee fleas. They're a tiny mites. They're called called varroa mites, which Mm. live on bees. And they're, they're a parasite. And bees, when bees nuzzle up to each other, uh, transfer these mites between them. And people thought maybe this was a manifestation of some parasite. But the varroa mites are not being found to be responsible for colony collapse disorder. So it must be something else. But as yet, no one knows because there's nothing to study. You come and find an empty hive, a few dead bees, but very difficult to actually understand what's going on because the bees are all gone. So until we can get a handle on what's causing this, we won't actually know how to combat it. Um, But it does appear that the phenomenon, whatever it is, is spreading, and it has been reported in Europe. And bees, honeybee numbers, have certainly declined here in the UK, and people are very worried. I noticed that in my garden I see far fewer honeybees than I ever used to, and certainly when I was a lot younger, when I was little, they used to be all over the place. When you Mm. had clover and flowers and things in the garden, they would be covered and festooned in honeybees, and and they're not now. Um, But at the moment, it's a mystery. We don't know what this colony collapse disorder is. And so we don't really know how to stop it because we haven't identified the cause yet. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Um, it's time to go to the phones now because we've got Fearless Frank on the phone. Hello, Fearless Frank. Hello, Sue. Hello um, there. Dr. Chris, two very quick questions which um, you can answer very quickly, no doubt. The first one, uh, convenience foods often comes in plastic packaging which you can put in the oven up to, say, 200 degrees centigrade. Um Tell me why, if you know, doesn't the plastic melt? Well, it's all to do with the chemical composition. Plastics are polymers, and polymers are very long chains of molecules, hydrocarbons usually, and that means carbon atoms linked nose to tail, surrounded by hydrogen atoms. But you can also put other chemicals on the side, like side chains, and depending upon what side chains you put on, you affect the behaviour and the thermal behaviour of these polymer chains. Because when you heat up a polymer, what you're doing is giving energy to the polymer chains. And this makes them vibrate. And if they're just simple polymer chains, like polythene, for example, the simplest polymer, just lots of carbon atoms in the long lines, if you give them energy and make them vibrate, then the faster they vibrate, the easier they find 
it to slip past each other, which is why polythene stretches and bends and deforms when you make it warm. But if you add other chemicals to the sides of the chains, and I'm thinking of very big chemical groups, you can add big rings of carbon atoms. You can also add charged atoms, which then begin to act as attractants because opposites attract, so you can have positive bits on one bit of a chain and a negative bit next door, and these two will try and attract each other. This will mean that the chains lock together much more tightly and even when you raise the temperature, they find it much harder for the chains to slip past each other, making the plastic deform. And so by altering the composition of the polymers and the chemicals you're using to make the plastics, you can make them have all kinds of different uh, thermal and other behaviours. They'll, they'll resist certain chemical attacks, for instance. They might be more resistant to attacks by light and ultraviolet. Uh, they might withstand extremes of temperature much better and so that's what organic chemists are doing to try and make better polymers that's part of the process so it's all about tweaking what the polymers are made of to change their behavior lovely thanks very much frank thank you take care bye-bye good night bye-bye now uh you at uh what a great name has a question for you chris he says that he's been listening to you talk about the seven-day painkilling injection and was wondering what there is available for people who are in constant pain Okay, well, pain management is something which was historically a bit, a bit underappreciated. And that wasn't the fault of anaesthetists and doctors. It was more that there weren't the kinds of agents and drugs that we needed in order to get good control of pain. If you think back 100 years or so, when anaesthetics were only just coming in, the best that you could really offer people was some whiskey and maybe a blast of laughing gas. Mm -hmm. Humphrey Davy was one of the first people to discover that you could actually kill pain with laughing gas, but it didn't catch on for quite a while. People were doing operations, they were doing amputations without any proper anaesthesia, and women were having to give birth without any pain relief, which was making life absolutely intolerable for lots of people. And these days, we don't know how lucky we are, but there are still some people who, who struggle with chronic pain, and, and it is a big problem. Luckily, there, there is uh, help at hand, and there are things that we can do now which we could never do before. And, and it comes down to several things. One is helping people to modify their lifestyle a little bit, which might help to mitigate pain. So for people who have very bad degenerative disease, say bone disease, joint disease, whatever, then perhaps helping people to get around the house a bit more easily by putting in stair lifts or other kinds of aids, this can mean their life is a bit more comfortable. Then there's, can we do something surgical to correct a problem? If someone has very bad pain in their hips because their hip joints have worn out mm. because of arthritis, if we replace the hip joints, you don't do that just to get people mobile. You actually do hip replacements for pain relief because it's very effective. It makes people much more comfortable and then they become more active again and then their quality of life returns. Then there's things like drugs. You can take painkillers. The painkillers we have are very effective. There are simple drugs like paracetamol, acetaminophen, mm -hmm. which, uh, if you take this regularly, is very good. Then there are other classes of paracetamol-like drugs like ibuprofen and aspirin, naproxen, indomethacin, these kind of agents, diclofenac. They're very good at damping down pain, but there's a limit to how much pain they can control because some forms of pain are very severe. You can then step things up and go a, a bit higher up the pain pecking order and start taking drugs that exploit morphine-like effects. There are various drugs which are chemically very similar to morphine. They're not actually morphine, but they're chemically similar, which means that they have some of the pain-killing power of morphine without causing side effects. 
These are drugs known as opioids, and things like codeine fit into that category. There are other drugs which are a bit similar to codeine, which are also very good at pain relief. And then you get to the category of very, very severe pain, and then you do start to use drugs like morphine and like heroin. Heroin is, too, is a morphine molecule with an extra bit of chemical on the side, which when you put it into the body gets chemically modified and turned into morphine. So heroin is basically morphine uh, in a different form. And, and those drugs, of course, do have side effects, and they're only really used under exceptional circumstances and, and carefully. But then there are other things that doctors are beginning to do these days by tinkering with the nervous system itself, because we've learned a lot about how the nervous system transmits pain in, or gets pain, uh, registers pain, and then transmits it to the brain. And there are now things like electrical stimulators which can be implanted adjacent to the spinal cord and these activate different nerve fibres and in the process of activating different nerve fibres can damp down the transmission of pain through other nerve fibres, nerve pathways. And this is very, very useful for things like pain caused by cancers. People who have lung cancers that grow into bones adjacent to the lungs like ribs can experience awful pain and sometimes these kind of implants can be very good at damping down that pain and making people much more comfortable and then there are other uh, occasional uh, interventions where people will actually implant electrodes around nerves up in the brain stem and this can be very useful for certain types of pain that affect the head and neck too and so there there are things that can be done and there are now specialists in medicine who are chronic pain management specialists who are very good at recognising what things are wrong with people and what the best way to treat them is and then actually putting people through a sort of pathway, stepping up the treatment and tinkering the treatment to get it right because we all look different because genetically we're all different and that means on the inside we're chemically all different too and what works in one person may not be the best treatment for another. So it's a question of trying different things until we get the right combination to make someone comfortable. Mm. Chris, Johnny Bedford has uh, called in and said that he listened to a recent Radio 4 programme about imbalance between omega-3 oils and omega-6 oils and they suggest that there's a link between this imbalance and physical and mental illnesses. Can you elaborate on this any more? Well, the, the omega-3s and omega-6 fatty acids, these are uh, big, long-chain carbon-to-carbon chains, hydrocarbons, which have various double bonds in them. What they mean by omega-3 and omega-6 is the position of double bonds in the long-chain fatty acids, as they're known. And these are linked to uh, various health and ill health states. We know that we need these chemicals in cells. They're very important in the membranes of our cells. Our cells have oily membranes surrounding each of the cells and you need these chemicals to form stable membranes and you also need them to do other chemistry inside the cells. Um, I'm not aware of people talk talking about imbalances between them, but I know that some people have shown evidence that the omega-3s are very good for brain development. Omega-6, I don't know if there's as much evidence in favour of that. Um, but I'm not aware that people are able to say, do a test and say your omega-3-6 balance is a bit out, uh, therefore you need to do more of this. Um, but the, these fatty acids are very important. If you don't have enough of them, then uh, your health does suffer. There, there's an increased risk of heart disease. And in the developing brain, there's evidence that uh, in young people who eat lots of oily fish, so mackerel a couple of times a week, for example, uh, these individuals have a higher reading age than people that are not exposed to these things. So uh, they're definitely good for you. Um, but I don't know what the evidence is in favour of uh, how much of each you need to have or what the good profile or the bad profile is.
All right. Now, Jackie sent an email. He says, um, dogs have deep muscles and superficial muscles. Why do some of these muscles have the same names? And she gives um, an example of Omer Transverse, I think, is in the example, if I've pronounced it properly. What do you say, Chris? Uh, well, the, the reason is that muscles are named anatomically. In other words, they're usually named according to what they do. So a very good example of this is that if you look around the mouth, for example, you have uh, a muscle which is called levator labii. It uh, levator as in lifts up labii of the lips, lifts your lips. You also have uh, a, a tiny muscle that goes up from there around the side of your nostril, which has the longest name of all the muscles in the body, yet is the most trivial and insignificant muscle you could possibly dream up. This is called levator labii superioris alequinasii. And what it translates into is the lifter of the upper lip and also the side of the nose. And uh, in fact, uh, some people have even used that muscle name as a grace at medical dinners. Um, so what they're basically doing is naming muscles after the jobs that they do. And because we have a lot in common with dogs, dogs are mammals like we are, they might have four legs and we walk on two, still have four limbs between the two of us. And therefore, many of the joints are exactly the same. Many of the movements are exactly the same. And therefore, there are muscle homologues or correlates in both animals that do pretty much the same jobs and therefore they're just known anatomically by the same names it's time to go to the phones again dr chris we have um it's derek on the line hello derek hello hello there you're through to dr chris what's your question hello dr chris hello, um, Derek. about two or three weeks ago on a saturday night i was very fortunate to watch the, the space station go over question is uh, it travels at seventeen thousand mile an hour I, I say. My, my questions are how did it actually get to be travelling at 17,000 miles an hour, does it need some extra help to keep it going at 17,000 an hour, or will it eventually slow down or just keep constantly going round and round and round, round the earth? And, and another quick yeah. question is how many times and how often does it go round the earth? Oh, that's a good question. I don't actually know the uh, orbital time of the International Space Station, but I, I can find that out. But in terms of how it gets to be going at 17,000 miles an hour, the reason it has to go at that speed is because that's close to the escape velocity for Earth. In other words, Earth pulls things back towards it because of gravity. And in order to overcome the effect of gravity, you have to accelerate away from Earth and you have to be going fast enough to get to a point where your attempt to get away from Earth opposes Earth's attempt to pull you back. And when that happens, you go into orbit. So in other words, if I fire something away from Earth, the Earth is pulling it back and it's going away from the Earth. If the amount it tries to get away from Earth is the same as the Earth's pull back on it, then the two things balance each other out and it stays where it is. But the space station is trying to travel in a straight line, and Earth is continuously pulling it back towards it a little bit. And so as a result, it's a bit like having a ball on the end of a piece of string and whizzing the ball around. The ball is trying to go in a straight line, but the string is pulling on the ball all the time, and the result of that is a circle. You go into orbit. Oh, wow. And so the rocket that put the first bit of the space station up into space had to get up to 17,000 miles an hour because that's the escape velocity of planet Earth. Once it gets into a stable orbit, then you start to assemble your space station and obviously once you start to add more bits to it, all those bits have got to be accelerated to the same speed to get them there too. And that's why things are going at the speed they are. Um, in terms of, of what its orbital period is, I'm not sure exactly how far out it's orbiting, um, so I don't know how many times it completes an orbit for the Earth, but that's relatively easy for me to look that up. But in terms of what will be the ultimate fate of the International Space Station, an orbit is chosen for these things and satellites 
such that they'll have as long a half-life in space. In other words, they'll stay out there for as long as possible. Because although we think of space as suddenly beginning, actually the Earth's atmosphere extends like thin tendrils out quite a long way from Earth, which means that although the atmosphere there is very rarefied, there's not much of it, there's still a little bit. And therefore, as things orbit the Earth, they do lose tiny amounts of energy over a very long period of time, which means they slow down a bit. If they slow down, it means that Earth's gravity begins to win a bit and they begin to move inwards towards Earth and slowly decay. And that's why space stations like the Russian Mir space station did eventually collapse and fall into the sea and burn up on its way back because its orbit decayed. And the same thing happens to satellites over time too. Right. So, well, so Ryan, I appreciate that now, but what about not saying that when that went over top and wrote over top, will that actually keep going in that same place? Well, it depends on what orbit has been chosen relative to the surface of the Earth. And uh, it, because, of course, it's going round in a circular orbit, but the planet is, of course, also turning. That's and right. so you're seeing the combined effects of the two. And so I don't know what the path is on the Earth because I don't know what, what its position is relative to Earth. But it depends. There are two ways to orbit the Earth. You could have an equatorial orbit, so you go around the same direction as the parallel to the Earth's equator. Or you could have a polar orbit, and some satellites that want to scan the surface of the planet, like weather satellites, have a polar orbit, so they go over the top and over the bottom. And this means the planet turns under the satellite, and this means the satellite then gets a snapshot of lots of different bits of the surface of the Earth as the Earth turns. And so it's a good way of seeing lots of the Earth's surface. I think the space station, though, is in an equatorial-type orbit. So uh, you, you should probably see a fairly standardised stereotype trajectory for that. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.